I think President Biden was incredibly disrespectful to Saudi Arabia and the crown prince on this recent trip because you asked about the trip. I think he yeah. success yeah, he successfully turned one page of probably many pages or chapters he's going to have to do for Saudi Arabia, you know, calling them a pariah and saying that Saudi Arabia has very little social redeeming value. Um, you know, that's just very, very bad foreign policies. Now he finds himself in a bind. Oil prices are through the roof. He had to go to Saudi Arabia to beg for oil. He says he wasn't going to Saudi Arabia to beg for oil. Um, he said he wasn't going to meet the crown prince or he, I shouldn't say that. He said, when people asked, are you going to meet the crown prince? He said, well, I'm going to be going to a summit and it's going to have all the Arab leaders. And yes, the crown prince is going to be there. Come on. We all know that he was yeah. going to meet the crown prince. We saw he met the crown prince. They fist bumped each other. Uh, you know, it, the, the way they try to hide the ball. Jason Greenblatt made history as senior advisor to President Trump, one of several Orthodox Jews to serve Trump. Jason has written a new book entitled In the Path of Abraham. Describing his experience as Trump's Middle East envoy, Jason was the architect of the Abraham Accords, perhaps the most historic peace treaty in modern history. Remember to buy the book on Amazon, leave it a great review in the path of Abraham. In addition, Jason hosts the Diplomat podcast on Newsweek, so be sure to check that out. Learn all about today's hot topics. You can find it on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now here is my exclusive interview with Jason Greenblatt. We are privileged to welcome to the VIN News Podcast, Mr. Jason Greenblatt. Mr. Greenblatt spent three years as President Trump's special envoy to the Middle East. He spent 20 years working for Trump in the private sector. So I think it's safe to say that he's got a unique glimpse into the real Donald Trump. And uh, Mr. Greenblatt just put out a new book, In the Path of Abraham. It is a pleasure to have you join us. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Yes, and uh, we're going to get to, I want to hear about your experiences as the envoy to the Middle East, of course, the Abraham Accords, uh, the two-state solution, as brought to you by President Trump. I want to begin by asking you, uh, in your perspective, unique perspective, who is the real Donald Trump? Well, I worked for Donald Trump for 20 years before working for him for three years at the White House, and my experience with him was enormously positive. Uh, he was always respectful to me, always respectful to my family always respectful of me being an observant Jew. That's not to say he wasn't demanding. Uh, people in those positions have a lot of responsibility. He demanded excellence. He deserved excellence. Uh, and uh, I only could say the best of things. I think in 20 years, I had one disagreement with him. That says a lot. It says an awful lot. And I'm glad to hear that perspective because I think many people who really got to know him as insiders, you know, the the close kind of uh, insider bond uh, give a very different view than the prism that we see uh, through the long distant cameras and media. And it's funny, your words actually echo. I, I know I've heard Corey Lewandowski numerous times, who I believe was was fired by Trump when he when he was his campaign manager, say exactly what you said. Mr. Trump was demanding. He he slept like four hours a night and worked like 20, was a workaholic. So he wanted us to do similar things. And uh, like Corey Lewandowski, only has the most positive stuff to say about him after being fired. Yeah, you can't blame somebody for demanding excellence, not in the private sector, and certainly not when you occupy the Oval Office. So, yeah, it's really interesting to hear that perspective. And like I said, I am going to get to picking your brain about the time you spent in the Middle East. But again, just focusing on Trump for a moment, since you're here, President Trump, was, and I'm going to go get, of course, to your book, uh, In the Path of Abraham. President Trump, I would argue, was as big a supporter of Israel as any president over the past 50 years, maybe rivaling uh, President Reagan, 
President Bush. Obviously, the embassy move was historic. He recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan. He defunded the Palestinians, crushed the Iranians. I'd also mention that Nikki Haley uh, was a staunch supporter of Israel in the UN, which was, I'm sure, not easy for her. Um, so, And now we have Biden, and I know you've spoken about President Biden, who I'm going to say, I think in a way he's you know, almost thrown Israel under the bus with uh, the terror wave that we're seeing. So if you could tell me your perspective on all of that <laughs> loaded question. Yeah, so I think President Trump was enormously fantastic for Israel. I mean, the, you recognize some of the things he did. And when it comes to the Jerusalem announcement, just so people understand, the enormous pressure that it was put on him not to follow his campaign promise, not to follow U.S. law. Let's remember this was U.S. law, the 1995 Jerusalem Recognition right. Act required the uh, president to recognize Jerusalem as the capital, to move the U.S. embassy. Every presidential candidate promised. The only one who delivered was Trump. He was called by so many world leaders. I was called by so many leaders. Jared Kushner was called by so many leaders trying to talk us out of doing, out of respecting or following, I should say, U.S. law. President Trump did it. He thought that whatever um, whatever he saw, all the threats about how it would start World War III, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you should hear the threats that were given to him by all these other countries, even some people wow. within our own government. Uh, and he recognized that it just wasn't true. And here we are in 2022, and we could safely say that the decision he made in December of 2017 was the correct decision not to sign a waiver for national security reasons. Let's understand that that's the only reason that a president could have not followed that law. I remember being at a conference and one of the so-called experts in the Middle East peace process said, you know, when President Trump did this, why didn't he exact a penalty out of Israel? Why didn't he demand that Israel do X, Y, or Z for the Palestinians? And I was flabbergasted by the question. Why? Because that's not what U.S. law says. U.S. law says you recognize it unless you need to follow, that's a, sorry, to file a national security waiver. It doesn't say do it unless you want to exact a penalty out of Israel or do it but give the Palestinians something. So I was, you know, surprised, but I guess in, in hindsight, and I touched on this in my book, not really surprised that this so-called expert would ask that kind of question. It's like astonishing. And uh, as you said, it, it was congressional law since 1995. And let's not forget to mention that every president as a candidate pledged to move the embassy. Every single one of them broke their promise. And what I was amazed was as President Trump was moving toward the embassy move and, uh, you know, seriously considering it, and then they kind of got him to delay it. There were headlines that said, you know, Trump stubbornly uh, moving toward, like, keeping his campaign promise, like ridiculous mainstream media headlines, like almost as like it's stubborn when a, when a candidate actually keeps his pledge as, as president. Yeah, so there's a saying, I'm not quoting it accurately, but people who no, don't talk. And people who talk don't really know. <laughs> and it's true that President Trump did sign one waiver, uh, the first waiver, and I think it was June of 2017. But he did that because we needed to go through an extensive process to actually make sure that there was no national security reason not to go ahead. And, and let's remember, it's a two-step thing. There were two things that the law required. One is the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, which of course he did, because it is the historic capital of of the Jewish people. It was and always will be the capital of the Jewish people of the Jewish state of Israel. And the embassy move, that took a little bit longer because that's actually a physical thing, not just a declaration, but he did both of them. And those who had said that he wasn't actually going to move forward didn't understand that there was a very extensive process he had to go through in order to make sure it was done properly. Very interesting. Yeah, I was, I was not aware of that. Those are the kinds of insights that uh, 
you know, you would know about that yet. Yeah, certainly do not get reported amongst the mainstream press. All right. I really want to focus on your book, your experience, your experiences and history was made. Um, let's focus on the Abraham Accords, which to me was some perhaps the most historic uh, deal that's been made in the Middle East in 50 years, maybe even longer, of course, since the big treaty with Egypt. I don't think that's an overstatement at all. You're the administration you were part of made peace in the Middle East. And you kind of, I would say, in a way, stayed out of the limelight. I, I, and I mean this, you know, almost to your praise and your benefit that, you know, I know you quietly were doing, making a lot of the chess moves behind the scenes, but, you know, you didn't necessarily step into the spotlight and the limelight. So, you know, your role, I mean, is it safe to say that uh, you were one of the chief architects of the Abraham Accords, that you were instrumental in, in laying the groundwork? Yeah, the Abraham Accords didn't come out of nowhere. It took several years of painstaking negotiation, painstaking education about the Arab-Israeli conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the U.S., in particular, President Trump standing by Israel. But then, of course, it just takes a couple of things to click them into place. And we had no idea if and when they would ever click into place. And one day they did finally click into place. And it's really, as you say, historic. There was a peace treaty between Israel and Jordan and Israel and Egypt. Both of those were really, really important, certainly for Israel's security, even beyond it. But that peace sort of never blossomed into the warm peace that it could be and should be. Uh, but peace between Israel and the UAE and Israel and Bahrain, it's, uh, it's remarkable. You see Israelis traveling there. Everybody's comfortable there. I wear my kippah in the UAE and I feel thoroughly comfortable. Um, I will say that even countries that haven't yet signed the Abraham Accords, like Saudi Arabia and Qatar, are important to this equation. I was in Saudi Arabia a couple of weeks ago. I said Qaddish in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I wasn't at all uncomfortable davening with a minion in front of uh, my Saudi friends. I wouldn't say that about some European cities these days. Interesting. Yeah. And maybe uh, some some boroughs of New York, of New York City. Um, so I'm really curious about this. You actually visited the UAE. You visited Saudi Arabia. And as you said, you were a yarmulke, you were a keeper and davened with a minion in Saudi Arabia. I was not yeah, aware of that. And, and let me clarify. I wore my keeper in the UAE openly. In Saudi Arabia, I wore it in certain meetings and I wore a baseball hat. Okay at other times, because sure. it's a big country. It's not that the Saudis are anti-Semitic, but you don't know who's walking around in the streets sometimes, and uh, it's better. But dominating with a minion there was not a problem. Of course, I, you know, wore tefillin there even when I was in government, but I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't wearing my tefillin out in the open, let's say, uh, when I was in the government. And things are changing. They're changing so rapidly. Yeah, that's what's really incredible. And uh, you know, I, I, getting back just for a moment to the Abraham Accords, I, I believe the media downplays it because it was Trump. I have no doubt that if Obama had done, you know, had made peace between Israel and just one of those countries, talking about Bahrain, the UAE, the Saudis, it's unofficial, but everybody, everybody knows there's a, there's a coziness there, you know, the, the airspace and everything else. Uh, Obama, they would have like invented a whole known like Nobel Peace Prize for him, you know, just to praise him for that. So tell us how big a deal the Abraham Accords were, and a part of it, I, you know, some people feel it's almost Obama that was instrumental in bringing them together in a negative way because he really empowered Iran. And I do want to get to Iran a little bit. So how big a deal were the Abraham Accords? And getting back to the Biden question, because I noticed, I know in, in your book, um, which I, I haven't been able to read all the parts of it, but uh, I, I know you sort of discuss, at least you warn about, I believe, you know, the, the potential harm that the Biden administration could be doing. So if you could tell us all about that. Sure. So one of the reasons the Abraham Accords is so important and so historic is it brings 
real peace, economic opportunity to both to all the countries involved, a lot of travel, a lot of cultural sharing, a lot of friendship, warm, actual friendship. And the media took great pains to sort of say, much of the media anyway, oh, it's really not a big deal. Israel and the UAE were never at war. Well, that's true. But being never being at war and not having peace, not having any kind of relationship, diplomatic or otherwise, is, is very different. So I think that in give President Trump the credit that he deserves. I agree with you that if it was a different president, they probably would have created some sort of very unique historic Nobel Peace Prize for it. I think the Biden administration initially did not embrace the Abraham Accords. There's this great clip that I encourage people to search for on YouTube, where the State Department spokesman Ned Price uh, kept referring to the Abraham Accords as normalization agreements. And there was this journalist in the room who wasn't going to let him get away with that. I don't know who the journalist was, but he kept was it saying- Matt Lee? Usually it's Matt Lee, I think, who gives I, these guys a hard time. But yeah, I'm not sure. But he kept saying, why don't you use the name, the Abraham Accords? And you could see Ned Price sort of squirming at the podium, just really trying every which way not to use the, the phrase Abraham Accords, uh, probably because they didn't want to give Trump the credit. Eventually, the journalist was so good that you know Ned sort of had to back down and say, oh, of course, it's called the Abraham Accords. And then he flipped again to something else. So I think, uh, you know, I, I think they were very reluctant to give him the credit around the first anniversary of the Abraham Accords, which roughly coincides with our disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. They started to embrace the Abraham Accords uh, by name. And now they say they support it. They want to encourage it. But the problem is you can't work on the Abraham Accords and treat our allies and friends in the Gulf uh, poorly. Right. I think President Biden was incredibly disrespectful to Saudi Arabia and the crown prince. On this recent trip, because you asked about the trip, I think he yeah. success. Yeah, he successfully turned one page of probably many pages or chapters he's going to have to do for Saudi Arabia. You know, calling them a pariah and saying that Saudi Arabia has very little social redeeming value. Um, you know, that's just very, very bad foreign policies. Now he finds himself in a bind. Oil prices are through the roof. He had to go to Saudi Arabia to beg for oil. He says he wasn't going to Saudi Arabia to beg for oil. Um, he said he wasn't going to meet the crown prince or he, I shouldn't say that. He said, when people asked, are you going to meet the crown prince? He said, well, I'm going to be going to a summit and it's going to have all the Arab leaders. And yes, the crown prince is going to be there. Come on. We all know that he was yeah. going to meet the crown prince. We saw he met the crown prince. They fist bumped each other. Uh, you know, it, the, the way they try to hide the ball. Another example would be President Biden wrote this Washington Post op-ed where he says, that everything is so historic, he's going to be flying from Israel to Jeddah first time ever. Well, yeah, technically that's true because that city pair was never flown before. But how was he able to do that? Because President Trump in 2017 flew from Riyadh to Tel Aviv. So there's a lot of, you know, misleading talk. Um, I think the trip was as good as it could have been expected in terms of Saudi Arabia, given how he treated Saudi Arabia. I think there's a long way to go to repair that relationship. Uh, if you wanted me to also talk about President Biden's trip to Israel, I'm happy to do that, too. Yeah, I was going to say his trip to Israel. And I also want to hear your thoughts. And I'm sure they're connected uh, about the way he's kind of propped up Iran. Uh, you know, they have these talks which stall and just keep on making zero progress. And meanwhile, the Iranians are enriching uranium like proudly to like 60, 70, 80 percent. And like it's it's not even a secret because they're admitting and then the U.N. is confirming that they're literally weeks away from from a nuclear weapon. And yet the media totally ignores the fact that Biden's the one who, who enables that and, uh, you know, just uh, literally gives them a path to a nuke while, while claiming that he's trying to denuclearize them. So and prevent that. So, yeah, let me hear your thoughts on the trip to Israel and on Iran. Sure. So I think I think President Biden himself is pro-Israel. I, I have no, you know, no concern that he's not pro-Israel. Which has pro been his record. 
Right. It's been his record. And I think he said the right things and did the right things. His his visit to Yad Vashem was very touching. You know, speaking to the Holocaust survivors was very touching. And he certainly had the right message. But you have to dig beyond the message. So when you dig beyond the message, you have two issues you have to pay attention to. One is Iran, and I'll get to that in a minute, because that's part two of your question. And one is the Palestinians. Going to the East Jerusalem Hospital Network without, a comp- without being accompanied by Israeli officials is a signal, a signal that he doesn't necessarily believe that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. So he didn't outright say it. And they took down the, the Israeli action. flag off the limo. Right. I'll add that. Right. So it, it's a very, very bad sign. Is he saying that East Jerusalem belongs to the Palestinians, which just isn't true. There's not even a source for that, right? That's just something people say all the time. It's something the Palestinians demand, but it, it actually doesn't say that anywhere. So I think that was a very bad move. And let's also remember that he donated $100 million of U.S. taxpayer money to the East Jerusalem Hospital Network because the Palestinian Authority can't pay the bills for the hospital. Why can't they pay the bills? Well, number one, there's corruption. And number two is because they're spending a lot of money paying terrorists to harm and murder Israelis. If they they changed what's called their pay-to-slay program, where they encourage Palestinians to commit terror acts against Israel, and if they stopped the corruption, and if they spent their money wisely, they'd have a lot more money. And if they fell short, right, if they really... Uh, tried hard with their economy, tried hard with all the donations they get from around the world, and then fell short, I wouldn't object to U.S. taxpayer money being used for health care for Palestinians. But before you use our taxpayer money, which we sorely need in our own country, let's yeah. make sure the Palestinians do their job first right. Stop paying Palestinians to harm and murder Israelis. Stop the corruption. Use the money in the right way. And then come to talk to us. So I think those are two very uh, important signals of no matter what he said, there's still an underlying misunderstanding about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Right. I'll just add, by the way, the Taylor Force Act was passed in Congress, which was supposed to prevent money from going to the Palestinians. However, they figured out how to circumvent that. Uh, now I'll let you continue. I know you want to move. Yeah, to and I think the hospital actually was a carve out to the Taylor Force Act. And okay. in theory, it so should that's be. That's there. Right. Yeah. So, and in theory, it should be, but only for the right reasons. Do you want your taxpayer money, your taxes to go to uh, to pay a hospital bill that really should be paid exactly. by the Palestinians? And uh, unless, you know, if they did their job right, I think the answer is most Americans would probably say no. Iran. So Iran is, you know, he said certain right words, right? He said Iran should never have a nuclear weapon. But what does that mean? You know, let's let's understand that that's just empty promises and empty words. It's clear he had a disagreement with Prime Minister Lapid. He, President Biden, that has said that his first approach is through diplomacy. Prime Minister Lapid said diplomacy is not going to work. Uh, And you're right. Now, people sometimes blame President Trump for withdrawing from the JCPOA, and that's why Iran is so close to developing a nuclear weapon. President Biden's been on the job a year and a half now, right? It's time for him to take responsibility. All of this time of letting the the clock run out, that's on him. That's not on President Trump. So, you know, now we're hearing that the deal is on life support. Let's assume for a second he signs that deal again, right? Let's assume Iran caves, comes back to the table, signs the deal. We have to understand the major flaws of that agreement. It was the flaw then, and it will remain the flaw. Iran will have a right to have a nuclear weapon in several years, right? That was the deal. The deal simply kicked the can down the road so that you could tell your children or I could tell my children, we simply bought time. That's not a good deal. The other thing is separate from the nuclear threat, which is a very serious threat to Israel and its Arab neighbors, is that they gave Iran so much money, which Iran then uses to foment terrorism around the world. Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in Gaza, Houthis in, in Yemen, all they do is create terrorism and all sorts of trouble, 
primarily in the Middle East, but elsewhere as well. They make trouble in Morocco. They've done things elsewhere. That's what that deal gave them. It's a deal that makes absolutely no sense. But now we're in a difficult situation because they are so close to a nuclear weapon. Wow. I have one final question. Um, We've mentioned all the positives and successes of President Trump, of Donald Trump. Obviously, we know there's some controversies. The media's focused on January 6th, but honestly, anyone who has an issue with January 6th had an issue with Trump long before January 6th. But point blank, would you support Donald Trump as a candidate in 2024? <laughs> Good question. I, I think he was a great leader. I think he had great policy. Uh, we don't know if he's running yet, so we'll have to see what happens. Okay. Uh, I think he's, I think he's going to run. Uh, I think it's safe to say I don't think he's going to be able. You know him much better than I do, but he just he won't be able to resist, especially after the old 2020 fiasco. Uh, Mr. Drayson Greenblatt, again, the book is uh, In the Path of Abraham. I need to tell you your clarity, your perspective, your wisdom. I mean, just clearly your in-depth knowledge, not just your insider knowledge, but just hearing you discuss this firsthand and your experiences. I mean, obviously you lived it and you and you breathed it, but also, you know, you clearly have just an incredible um, passion uh, in, in terms of all the things that you've accomplished and you just des- and you deserve to me endless praise. I mean, you and your the administration you were a part of and you really led that team for a while just accomplished things that are historic and that that will never at least it'll take a few years until history really sheds light like i said because it's so skewed by the media in my opinion so i appreciate that thank you thanks for having me as a guest yeah absolutely my pleasure jason greenblatt uh, on the vin news podcast former envoy to the middle east under president trump